Good evening. This is tall, isn't it? You can all see me behind this, can you? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, you're really welcome. Welcome uh, to family. Welcome to church. Welcome home. It's great to have you here. Uh, my name's Gareth. Uh, looking around, I think I know you all at this stage. Uh, if there's anybody visiting, you're really welcome. Uh, we hope you feel part of the family. Um, Tonight, we are, are coming to the end of a little mini-series we've been looking at on sexual ethics, and tonight we want to be looking at what is a really hot-button topic, a, real, a really difficult topic um, to, to talk about, and that is the area of same-sex attraction and what the Bible says about that. Um, and, and before we get into it, uh, I, I want to say uh, a couple of things. Um, For some of you, this is a theoretical topic, and for some of you, this is a very live issue. It's something you live with yourself, or you have a loved one that lives, um, and and this is how they're wired. Um, And so I'm not going to be able to say everything tonight, and I I may get some things wrong, and if I say something that, that hurts you, or annoys you, please know that's not my intent. And don't just walk away. Come and speak to me, and I'm going to hang about afterwards, um, and I'll be available during the week as well. But if you want to speak about anything that's talked about tonight, uh, I really want to encourage you to do that. That's absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. Um, second thing I want to say, and I've already said this, but let me say it really clearly, you are welcome here tonight. Whatever your background, whatever your story, whatever your journey, whoever you're attracted to or not attracted to, you are welcome here in Orangefield tonight. And you'll be welcome next Sunday and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that. This is a place with open doors and this is a place of welcome. Third thing. Um, As I've been thinking about this topic for, for a few weeks now in the build-up to tonight's teach, um, there's a phrase going around my head. It's tied to those words um, in Matthew 18. It's tied to those words in Luke's gospel as well, uh, where Jesus, the good shepherd, leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one. And as we come tonight, I, 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 there's a feeling over me uh, that, that God wants to bring lost children home. And I want to say that. I want to speak that out loud. Um, God wants to bring you home tonight if you feel lost. The final thing I want to say before we get into this is um, I'm going to speak for about 30 or 40 minutes, depending on how time goes. Um, but this is a massive topic. I want to recommend three books. Um, Ewan's going to follow them up on the screen. There, I, I, I can see them here. There they go there. Um, uh, and there are three brilliant books um, looking at this area of same-sex attraction from the perspective of Christianity and, and Christians, Christ followers. And um, What I love about these books is each one of them is written by someone who is, experiences same-sex attraction, who is gay. Um, first one is by a lady, Rosiah Butterfield. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a brand new book. Uh, it's phenomenal, absolutely. I couldn't speak highly enough about this book. And the second one is by Ed Shaw, and Ed's a pastor over in England. Uh, it's called The Plausibility Problem, The Church and Same-Sex Attraction. Uh, and the third one is really, if you're not a reader, and you're know, reading something just takes a bit of effort for you, and that's okay. Um, this third book um, by Sam, I always say his name wrong, Albury? 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 Albury. He'll probably not fall out with us about it. Um, is God Anti-Gay? And it's, it's a little small book that, that you could read in a short period of time and, and just to break down some of this stuff for you. Uh, I would recommend any of these books. I, I really, really would. Um, let me read something and then let me pray. And grab a Bible. There's some around you. Uh, maybe you have one with you or on your device. We're going to be looking at an awful lot of Scripture tonight. Um, this is only one of the passages we're going to look at. 
And it's in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 19. Um, oh, in the evenings between January and Easter, we're, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about marriage, and we've used that as a springboard into a few other topics that spin off marriage uh, and sex and sexuality. And so I want to read these few verses tonight. It's Matthew chapter 19, reading from verse 3. This is God's Word. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let's pray for a moment. Father, you are good. You are the the Lord Almighty, but you are also our good Father. Everything about you is good and is perfect. Your plans, your desires, your design is perfect. And your invitation to us is perfect. And so as we look at things tonight, Lord, that are in your word, that that might make feelings rise up within us that are rebellious, that are, are angry, that are painful, Help us to remember the truth of what we know, that you are good and you are perfect, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to each one of us tonight. Be gentle with us and lead us into truth and love, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a little bit of background, a little bit of journey, first of all, um, to set this all up. As long as there has been art, as long as there's been history, um, paintings on walls of caves, um, there has been same-sex activity. Men have slept with men, women have slept with women. This is not a new thing or a new phenomenon. Uh, And we see that looking back through history. What is a much newer concept, though, is the idea of orientation. Um, So it it was in the 19th century we first started talking about um, being gay or being attracted to someone of the same sex, sex same-sex attracted. Uh, Freud and other uh, philosophers and thinkers sort of teased this out in different ways. Not a lot changed, though, and, and then um, in 1961, so I'm looking around, a few of you were born, quite a few of you were born in 1961, I'm not going to ask you to wave, but in 1961, Hollywood in America made a decision to start, uh, in their movies, depicting images of gay men. Up until that point, you would not have seen two men holding hands or been in any way attracted or physical with one another before 1961. But that was a conscious decision at that time in history. 1962, Illinois in America became the first state to legalize sex between two men or two women. Not even talking about marriage, just that the physical act was illegal before that. Um, And in 1962, Illinois in America became the first place to legalize that. Um, Different states followed suit. And then in 1967, England legalized same-sex activity. Northern Ireland didn't follow suit for a few years. It was 1982 before it was legal for two people who were gay to um, be intimate with each other. Which is very recent. In the Republic of Ireland, even more recently, 1993, was when it was legalized. 
But interestingly, from that decision in 1993 in the Republic of Ireland to legalize same-sex activity, in 2015, the Republic of Ireland became the first country in the world to legalize gay marriage. They got from here to here in a very short period of time. Why, why am I sharing this? Why, why am I sharing this journey? Um, because the pace of change that we are seeing in the attitudes of people and the attitudes of society and the narrative that has been told over our society about same-sex attraction, about LGBTQ issues, is unprecedented to anything else we have seen in history. The pace of change around the idea and the acceptance of this one issue, never before has society changed its opinion as quickly in the period of 40, 50 years, in the lifetime of most of the people in this room. And we don't know what the implications of this are, short-term or long-term. Some people are celebrating it, some people are lamenting it, but the truth is, we don't know what this means for society. Tim Chalice tweeted recently, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned, and those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. I thought it was a very interesting quote that catches the spirit of our age and the attitudes in society today. Some of you who are tuned in to things in the Presbyterian Church or even the BBC News will know that last year in June at our General Assembly, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland very publicly said some things about um, being gay that create, created an awful lot of annoyance and backlash in society. You're aware of this? Um, and I come tonight, and I'm guessing you come tonight because you want to know what does God think of this? What does God think? I, I, I really want to know the answer to that because it, for me, it's, it's a very real and very live issue. This is not theoretical, and this is not something that I might one day have to pastor. Um, I've been exposed to this and grown up around this for a long time. Um, 20 years ago, my best friend's brother, um, who was a Christian guy, came out as gay. And because of how he was treated, he found it so hard to live in Northern Ireland, he moved to England and still lives there today. This is a real issue. My cousin, who lives in London, is bisexual. This is a real issue. One of my best friends, who's a Christian guy, a couple of years ago, came to me and told me that he was same-sex attracted, that he was gay, and he asked me what he should do. This is a real issue. We don't get the luxury of hiding from this conversation. And what we're talking about is real people, our real people. And the question tonight, there's loads of places to start this conversation, but for us tonight, as Christ followers, as Christians, as the church, the only place we start this conversation is in Scripture, in here. Because when you give your life to Jesus, when you become a Christian, what you're saying is that God's Word is of a higher standard to my own conscience, my own feelings, and my own desires. And I lay down what I want at the foot of the cross, and I, I make it my life's mission to take on what He wants for me. And so tonight we're going to be looking at what God's Word says about this issue. So if you've got a Bible out, open it up. We're going to be bouncing about through different bits of Scripture tonight. First place we're going to go is uh, the first place we see this talked about in the Bible, and that is in Genesis 19, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've been around church for a while, you'd have heard of this. Um, the word Sodom is, is where we get the, the word Sodomite from. Um, so you, you can... You know, pull together the, the imagery and the ideas. Um, and some people will say, as they look at this text, what's going on here is that Lot, who's Abraham's son, 
goes to live in this town called Sodom. The neighboring town's called Gomorrah. And, and sets up life there. And when he's there, he's visited by three angels, three messengers from God. They come to visit him and, and they arrive at his house. But when it gets dark, um, the men from the village come to the house, knock the door, and they say to Lot, we want you to open the door and send out the three men who have come to visit you because we want to have sex with them. We want to rape them. And the story unfolds, and it's a really messy story. It's a really, really hard story. And some people look at this story and say, well, there's a condemnation on gay sex. That's not what this story is about, and I'm sharing this to discount this. This story is not about um, a monogamous, same-sex attracted couple who want to go into a committed relationship together. This story is about abuse This story is about power imbalance. This story is about attempted gang rape. And in any culture, I don't think you need the Bible to tell you that's wrong. To press even further into that, in Ezekiel 16, 49, um, God's word says that the sin of Sodom is the sin of excess, the sin of pride, the sin of greed. It's not about sexuality. It's about something far deeper. So I just throw it out there because sometimes people will say that that's a text that talks about being gay. It's not. It's not. It's something else going on there. Let's go to some texts that do speak about being gay. Leviticus 18, 22, Leviticus 20, 13. Um, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one has with a woman. That is detestable. And Leviticus 20, 13 says something very similar. What's, What's this talking about? Well, at a straight reading of it, at face value, seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Yeah? I don't know if you've ever heard though somebody say to you, well, why do we cherry pick the Leviticus law? Why do we take this bit and say this bit still applies? But you know, it also talks about shellfish, that you can't eat shellfish. I love prawns. Maybe you do too, I don't know. Um, and some people will say, you know, why do we say this bit is wrong, but this bit is okay? Are we just playing favoritism with it? And it's a fair objection. So it is, because we do. We, we discount some of the Levitical law as for that time in history, but other parts we say are a continuous law into the New Testament, into our age as well. So how, how do we make the distinction there? Um, Well, the answer is, do we see a New Testament principle that carries through from the Old Testament? Do we see under the new covenant of grace the same thing continued from the Old Testament? Well, with shellfish, for example, we don't because Peter is on the roof and he has this vision of a sheet coming down and it's full of all kinds of food that used to be considered unclean. And he hears a voice from heaven say, Peter, take and eat. And Peter says, no, I'm not going to eat that because those foods are unclean. I don't want to impurify myself. And the voice says, God says to him, what I have made, do not say, is unclean. So we see God change something and do something new there with regards to food and shellfish. So so there's no continuation into the New Testament with that. But what about being gay and what about... Um, same-sex activity. Is there a New Testament continuation from the Old Testament law? What does the New Testament say about um, same-sex activity? Well, let's look at a couple of passages. One is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. It's up on the screen. The other one is 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. They're both very similar. And if my eyes can see this, I'm going to try and read it to you. Uh, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or who practice homosexuality or who thieves or greedy people, and it goes on to list other things, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of our God. There seems to be conversation, teaching in the New Testament about homosexuality. The key word in this for us is this word on the screen behind me, um, arson coite. And here's the thing, it's a brand new word. It's a word that we've never seen before until Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians in the Bible. Never seen it before. And we don't even see it in other ancient Greek language until Paul uses it. And all scholars believe that Paul has invented this word. He's, he's made it up to try and capture an idea of what he means. And it's made of two words, two Greek words. The word arson, which means man. The word coit, which means bed. He's pulled them together to create this, uh, this image of two men lying together in bed, which we translate as homosexual practice. Here's the thing. Paul, at this time, was ministering into Gentile community, and Gentile community, at this time in history, was largely Greek-speaking. So, more than likely, Paul, who could read Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written. This is technical, guys, but it's important we understand it. Paul um, could read Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, because he was ministering to and speaking to a Greek population was more than likely using a Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, what we call the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the Bible. And what you see when you read these Leviticus passages in the Greek translation, which Paul would have had in his day, would be the words arson and coit together in that passage in Leviticus, I've lost it, Leviticus 18. These two words together, arson, coit, and what Paul has done is taken these two words from the Greek translation of Leviticus 18 and put them together, just taken the space out, put them together and formed a new word that he has lifted directly out of the Old Testament, put in the New Testament in these letters and said, it's the same thing. Do you see that? The practice, the law, continues from the Old Testament into the New Testament around this area of sexuality and sexual practice. Let me bring you to another passage. that talks about this, and it's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. For me, this is one of the most heartbreaking passages in the Bible. I love the book of Romans. It's so rich in theology, but this is one of the most heartbreaking passages in the Bible. Because what it says in summary, you can read it and look at it, but what it says in summary is that God made his design and his plans and his purpose is really clear to humanity both through his word and through the creation itself. But some people exchange the truth of God for a lie. And he starts talking about men lying with other men, women lying with other women. And what it says, God effectively left them to their own devices. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You see, what we see in Scripture and what we see in this passage in Romans, what we see throughout the whole Bible is that God has given us a blueprint for how to live, a design for how to live. And if God was some kind of tyrant, that, this would be a whole different story, but, but God is good. He is a good father. He is perfect in all of his ways. We are told this again and again in Scripture. And if we believe that God is good and we believe that God is perfect and we believe that God's plans are perfect, then his design for us 
is more perfect than the things we feel we want for ourselves. And that applies to every single one of us. Every single one of us. And when we get this choice, if we choose to follow Jesus, we get this choice. We can either choose to live according to God's perfect plans or we can choose to live according to our own feelings and desires. And what Romans tells us is that some people exchange the truth of God for a lie. They believe that their feelings and their desires are a higher standard than God's truth, are more perfect than God's truth. And what is God's design? Well, we see it in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And particularly in the area of human sexuality, we see God's design for human sexuality with one man and one woman coming together in a monogamous male and female relationship that we call marriage. It's there from the very start of the Bible, and it's what our church holds on to and teaches today. And you move into Genesis 3, and what you see is is Eve is tempted by the serpent. He says, you know, taste the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go on, taste it. And she says, but God said, no, don't do that. And, And the serpent says, did God really say that? Do you want to trust what God said, or do you want to trust your own feelings and desires? Do you want to trust that God knows best or trust that you know best? And Eve and Adam both made a decision that allowed sin to enter the world. And what that means is that that every single part of us, including our sexuality, every single one of us is broken and is flawed. And every single single one of us in our sexuality is broken and flawed. And that manifests itself in different ways. The other thing to say there is that every sin is equal in God's eyes. The other text I want to just show you really quickly tonight is the one we read in, in Matthew chapter 19. Some people say, but Jesus didn't talk about sexuality. If this was such a big issue, Jesus didn't talk about sexuality. Well, Jesus has asked this question, which is about marriage and is about divorce. And what he does is he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, at the very start of the Bible, he quotes and he says, this is why it is written that a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, the two will become one flesh, And he says, let me read it to you. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And yet, that means that individual marriage of male and female who come together, let nobody separate that individual marriage. But Jesus is actually talking about something bigger than an individual situation. He's quoting from Genesis, which talks about this framework, this design for marriage that God has given to humanity. And he says, let no one separate that. Let no one deconstruct God's design of marriage. Let no one re-architecture. That's not even a word. I've just made up a new word. Paul. I've just made up a new word. Let no one redesign what the architect has given and has said is perfect. Let no one separate, let no one take that apart, that idea that marriage is designed by God to be between one man and one woman coming together. As I show you these texts, I want you to see something really clearly. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere at all, is orientation condemned. Let me say this clearly. It is not sinful to experience same-sex attraction. It is not sinful to be gay. 
but what is sinful is acting upon those impulses and those desires. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what is condemned is the practice of homosexuality. Not the person, the practice. Uzziah Butterfield in her book, you know, we're hearing all this stuff and we're thinking, what do we do with this? What does this look like when I walk out these doors tonight? It's all very well having this theory, but, but we live in a world that, what do I do with this, Gareth? Rosiah Butterfield, um, you guys, you've got to read her book. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. The gospel comes with a house key. She says, let's face it. We have become unwelcome guests in this post-Christian world. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative Christianity has been dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become an Orwellian nightmare, where sexual orientation is now being considered a true category of personhood, who you really are, where biological sex is no longer considered a factual reality, offering God's designed blessing for all humanity, but only a psychological reality. It's meaning subject to how you feel. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of culture. The old rules don't apply, and many Christians don't even know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. I think she captures something really well about the spirit of our age. So what do we do? How do we engage with people? How do we talk to people? How do we love people who are members of the LGBTQ community? Let me read another passage in Scripture. This one's from John chapter 8. Really, tonight I'm just reading my favorite passages in the Bible. I'm going to read from verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. It's one of the most amazing stories that speaks of truth, that speaks of love, that speaks of sexual sin, and it speaks of pastoral restoration. Let me just, as we, yeah, to make this practical, let me give you three things to bring away with you. Because it's really important this isn't just a theoretical sermon tonight. Three things. First thing I think it's really important is that we need to recognize that the church and the LGBTQ community, the gay community, 
We're trying to have the same conversation, but we're starting from really different places. And it's causing a nightmare. It's causing an absolute nightmare. There's a box that might appear up on the screen, is there? No? No, it's gone. I'm going to explain the box that maybe would have appeared on the screen if I had put it in the PowerPoint properly uh, or something like that. Um, There's a couple of things that we're in really different places in our understanding about. The first one is the area of identity, okay? So if you are a member of the gay community, What has shifted in understanding in the past few years is the idea of identity and activity. So all night we have been separating those two things. But if you're part of the gay community, if you're part of the LGBT community, identity and activity are are so intertwined that you cannot separate them. Or they find it really difficult to separate them. Oh, there it is there. It just, just appeared like that. Um, Sexual desire and activity are tied up together to form identity if you're part of the gay community. But we have a different understanding than that. We believe that identity and activity are separate. We believe that that our identity, every single one of our identity is as an image bearer of God and that every single one of us is broken and fractured And the message of the gospel is to restore us back into the image of Jesus. And that's why we find it helpful in our thinking to use phrases like, love the sinner, hate the sin. But if you say that phrase to someone who is gay, all they hear is, you hate me. Because identity and activity are so intertwined. Does that make sense? Got to be careful about our language, guys. We're starting from a different understanding of identity. The other thing we're starting from a different place on is truth. As Christians, we believe the truth is ultimately found in what? The Word of God. But if you're not a Christian, in any way, and if you're not a Christian and you're, you're, and you're gay, You don't believe truth is found in the Word of God. You believe truth is found in you. Truth is relative to you. So you discover truth in your own experiences, and then you gather with other people in community to assimilate that truth. And that's why when you're in a conversation with somebody who is gay, who is same-sex attracted, it's not always helpful to say, yeah, but the Bible says... Of course we believe that, but if that's not their basis for truth, it's not a helpful starting place. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it's not where truth is. Truth is in the Word of God, but it's not a helpful starting place. And it's interesting that they're ha- they're having, we're having two different conversations and trying to find the same thing. And you see that in this text in John 8. The Pharisees come at this lady, and and all they see is doctrine. All they see is, but the law of Moses says. All they see is what she's done wrong. All they see is the punishment she deserves. But Jesus comes at a whole different angle. And he starts with the person. Not with the sin. He starts with the person. He meets her in her vulnerability. He comes at her with compassion, not judgment. I think we learn something there. I think we learn something there. I think too often we have engaged with the LGBTQ community. I, I, either fear And not knowing what to say or do or being scared of what will happen has caused us not to engage and not to talk about this and not to to reach out. Or we lead with doctrine and say, but the Bible says. And then proceed to hit them over the head with it. I want to say tonight, If you are here and you experience same-sex attraction and you have been made to feel rubbish or unworthy or judged by another Christian or a church, I am really sorry. 
I am really sorry, because I don't think that's what Jesus would do, and it's not what we're meant to do. I'm really sorry. I think sometimes sorry is a good place to start the conversation. Second thing, Jesus creates environments of welcome. Jesus creates environments of welcome. Jesus just has this amazing heart posture of hospitality. Like when you read the Gospels, you see people who have leprosy. And if you had leprosy 2,000 years ago, you weren't even allowed to hang with your own family. You had to live outside the town, away from your family, in a colony with other people who had leprosy. You weren't allowed to come near anybody else. And Jesus had people with leprosy just coming up to him. Prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners, people who, who rabbis and Pharisees had rejected, just were attracted to Jesus. And it's not that he didn't tell them the truth, he did. But he had this heart posture of hospitality. He created environments of welcome where people just felt so comfortable in his presence. In the story in John chapter 8, he deals with the crowd. And then, I don't know how you picture it, but this is how I picture it. I think she's lying on the ground and he's down here writing. And he looks up and I think he takes her chin and he lifts it up. And he looks her in the eyes. And you imagine the tears and the dust running down her face. He looks her in the eyes. And in that glance, in that look, in that gaze, she feels safe and she feels loved. He creates an environment of welcome. Rosiah Butterfield, again, quoting this lady, she says... We live in a post-Christian world that is sick and tired of hearing from Christians. But who can argue with mercy-driven hospitality? Take, for example, our Christian brothers and sisters who struggle with unchosen sexual desires and longings. Our brothers and sisters need the church to function as the Lord has called it to function, as a family. We need to be family to people who are trying to follow Jesus, who experience same-sex attraction and realize that the implications of that are a life of celibacy. We need to create family for them. Two really practical ways to do that. My granny always told me you have two ears and one mouth. What does that mean? Listen first. Just listen. Tell me your story. Tell me your, tell me your story. Just listen. Don't lead with the answers. Don't lead with the Bible verses. Just, just listen. When you read the gospel, it's amazing the number of times that Jesus encounters somebody who's broken and he lets them speak first. Just Listen. The second thing I think we have to do is, is, is to welcome and to keep welcoming. And when I say we need to get better at doing family, I don't mean a cup of coffee in a polystyrene cup for 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's great. So it is. But Ed Shaw, the, the guy who wrote The Plausibility Problem, that book, he is same-sex attractive. He's a gay guy who is a pastor in a church in England who takes the teachings of the Bible and of Jesus seriously and chooses to be celibate, to not to be in a relationship, to, to bring those desires to God and not to another human being. And he starts his book off by talking about he frequently finds himself on his kitchen floor just hunkering up against the cupboard in tears because of how hard this journey is. And he says, one of the things that makes it easier for him to follow the Bible's teachings as a man who experiences same-sex attraction is that there are people in his church who become family to him. He says, there are families on a Monday night who say to him, come to me for dinner every Monday night. 
on a Tuesday, come with my, I don't know, running group every Tuesday night. On a Wednesday, come and read my kids' bedtime stories every Wednesday night. People in his church who recognize that because of how he is, he's not going to experience family and intimacy in the way that you and I take for granted, reach out and inconvenience themselves and say, you are part of our family. Here's a key to the back door. And allow him to experience intimacy and family in a different way. And is that costly? Is that inconvenient? Is that going to wreck your plans for Saturday night? Absolutely. A hundred percent it is. But that's what it means to be church. That's what it means to be family. And if you think it's costly for you and me, for someone who is same-sex attracted, who is trying to follow Jesus, what they're being asked to give up is significantly more. Church, I feel so strongly about this, that we need to get better at doing family for people who experience same-sex attraction. I feel so strongly about this that I want to say we don't get the right to speak into their situation until we are willing to pick up their cross and walk with them. We don't get the right to speak into their situation from a distance until we are willing to pick up their cross and walk with them. Why do I say that? Because that's what Jesus did. That's what he calls us to do. I said about my friend, um, who a couple of years ago came out to me, we're trying to do that with him. He comes to our house for meals. He, he doesn't need an invitation. He just rocks up. Sometimes he comes really inappropriately late at night, and it's a total hassle. He comes in on his food. He talks. Sometimes about his struggles, sometimes just about life. He puts our kids to bed. He loves them, especially Archie. He's amazing with them. We let them treat him like an uncle. I think that's what we're supposed to do. I think that's what we're supposed to do. That's what church is supposed to look like. And we love him when he makes the right choices, and we also love him when he makes the wrong choices. I think we're supposed to create environments of welcome. And then finally, and just really briefly, Welcome creates environments of truth. If we can create environments of welcome, welcome creates environments of truth. Jesus, as he loved this lady, as the crowd dispersed, as he picked her up out of the dirt, he says, no one condemns you, then neither do I condemn you. She feels totally loved, totally safe. She is touched by his grace. And then he says to her in that environment of welcome, now go and leave your life of sin. There is a place to speak truth. There is a place to have hard conversations. There is a place to say to the person who has said to you, I think I'm gay. And I love Jesus and I'm trying to figure this out. There is a place to say, well, what this is going to mean is you have to choose celibacy. If you're going to take Jesus and the Bible seriously, this is what he wants for you. But what that looks like is a conversation that is drawn out, not in five minutes, but over days and weeks and months and years, over coffee, over food, around the dinner table in your home, as you love them. It's in love that we get to speak truth. And we do it gently, and we do it graciously, and we do it with a heart posture of hospitality and welcome. If you're here tonight and you're someone who experiences same-sex attraction, maybe you've come out to family and friends, maybe you haven't. Statistically, there's got to be people here tonight who experience same-sex attraction. There just has to be. I want to say really clearly, really simply, Jesus loves you 
You're welcome here. Jesus loves you. And he has something more for you. He has something more for you. His invitation to you is to experience life in all its fullness in him and not in the desires that you're feeling. And we would love to walk with you and help you learn more about Jesus. But you are welcome here. Church, we are called to be family. And I think we do that pretty well, but we're going to get better at it. And we're going to create environments of welcome for each other and for those who haven't yet connected with us yet. And that's going to happen in here and it's also going to happen in our homes. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He had an open table. Let's pray. There's been a lot of talking tonight, a lot of information to process, some of it new, some of it you already know. Some of you are maybe feeling encouraged, affirmed, some of you are struggling. Some of you are feeling angry. Holy Spirit, come. Come and do what you do best, what you love to do, Holy Spirit. Come and help each one of us tonight to see Jesus. To experience his love. To hear his invitation. To know his forgiveness. To hear his words, I have come that you may have life in all its fullness. In Jesus, there is perfect acceptance and an invitation to become more and more like him. And it's an invitation we need to say yes to and continue to say yes to again and again and again. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us. And thank you that you are good. And even in moments when it feels like life is really hard, help us to hold on to that truth that you are good.